Okay, so we are continuing with our study of the Nachyomi of Sefer Shemuel. The we miss you, I miss you too. The sponsorship for this was from Charlotte Chaverdi, who uh, decided to to uh, dedicate it for the Hatzlacha of Yeshivat Devaskel and for all of our uh, spreading of, of wisdom of Torah. Um, it's also, uh, but I, it, it ha- it's its own incentive to be able to see uh, all of you who are able to join in the various different shiurim that we've been able to have. It's been uh, it's been nice to stay connected, and hopefully, if you're not able to join live, people are able to hear the recordings. And I'm making my best effort to be, you know, uh, to stay as connected and involved with everyone as I can, you know, through the learning on, online. So, Baruch Hashem, um, I'm happy to see it's continuing and it's working out at least um, as best as possible. Um, the uh, we left off yesterday actually uh, in uh, in the first parak. We're on pasuk kaf, and uh, as, as I mentioned, we, we sort of, I split this parak into two parts mainly because uh, there's too much content and there's too much depth to it. I did not want to gloss over the uh, the beauty of uh, of the components of the parak and the important lessons. So yesterday we talked about tefillat chana. And it's uh, I'm, the prayer of Chana, not what's called Tfilat Chana, because usually we talk about Tfilat Chana, people are thinking about the prayer that she says at the end, we're going to get to that, but more about her original prayer, where the transformative prayer, which she leads to, uh, which leads to the, uh, her conceiving Shemuel. And that, we're up to pas- the 10th, uh, the twen- 20th Pasuk, rather, uh, Pasuk Kaf. She calls his name Shemuel because she asked for him uh, from Hashem. And um, the uh, and as we know, Elkanah went up to offer his usual sacrifices in at that time Shiloh. But Chana was not prepared to go. She said, no, I'm not going to come with you this year, even though she would typically come whenever he would go to make a pilgrimage to Shiloh. She didn't want to come. She said, I'm not going to bring him until such time as he's ready to appear before God and stay there forever. And as we know from history, back in those days, it would be typical for a woman to nurse a child even as long as up to five years of age. So we're talking about Shmuel being um, a kindergartner or first grader maybe when he uh, is brought finally to Shiloh. So she uh, opts out of the pilgrimage to Shiloh because she wants to wean her baby so that he can be ready because she plans on fulfilling, and you see here that Elkanah fulfills Ed Zeva Chayamim Bet He fulfills his neder. He fulfills his oath to God, his promises to God, his commitment to God, and Chana is going to fulfill hers. And whereas Elkanah, and I think this is the interesting thing that as much as Elkanah is a good person, he's a tzaddik, and the Chazal talk about how he tried to inspire others to remain steadfast in their observance of Torah, even though it wasn't easy. I mean, when the leadership, when the spiritual leadership is so decrepit as it was in the times of Elkanah, when basically your experience of going to Shiloh is the most uninspiring experience, you're going there and dealing with the Bnei Eli, who are 
uh, low lives, essentially, as we're going to see in the next parak, it's not an easy sell to convince people to participate, and yet Elkanah remains very steadfast in his commitment, but his commitment is a conventional commitment, and that's something that we notice about Elkanah. Elkanah gives the conventional response to his wife, Hannah, of, oh, don't worry about it, you have me, we love each other, we have romance, we have a marriage, don't worry about not having children. Here he gives a conventional uh, uh, response to Elkanah, okay, you know, do whatever you want, you know. He, uh, I'm going to do my uh, my uh, traditional action, my conventional action of service of God. You've decided to do something unconventional and different. I respect you. I I allow that to happen. Uh, may Hashem fulfill his his promise. Meaning, may Hashem fulfill his end of the deal. You promised that you asked Hashem to make this child the child who was righteous and who was going to be great and going to be a great leader. And uh, and um. Uh, and meaning, and and you're fulfilling your end of it of giving him over to the Beit Hamikdash, or giving him over to Shiloh to become that great leader. Let's hope that Hashem fulfills his side of the bargain. In other words, you're doing something which is unconventional, unscripted. You're doing something which is off the beaten path. I'm following the beaten path. I'm going to the to Shiloh, and that's the point of the story. That Chana, because she was blocked from having a conventional existence, and she was blocked from giving birth to children in the normal way, and she was prevented from having her needs satisfied in an ordinary manner. That's what challenged her and brought out the greatness in her. Just like in the imahot of, that were prior to her, this kind of a challenge and difficulty what was, brought out, was what brought out the best in them. This is what occurs with Chana. Without that challenge, she would have just had a conventional religious existence. And the world would have stayed the same and there would have been no transformative emergence of a leader like Shemuel. History would have been very different. So you see the path of Elkanah is right back to Shiloh. That's not to criticize Elkanah, but to say that he was a conventional person. Chana was a unique person. She's departing from the cycle. She's stepping out of the convention in order to raise her child who is going to be uh, someone who upsets and resets the uh, the avodat Hashem of the Jewish people. Finally, when he was weaned, so he could live independently. Remember, they didn't have formula back then or baby food. There was no Gerber or Infamil or whatever it is. So the only uh, option for a baby was nursing from its mother or from a wet nurse. And at a certain and of course, they tried to keep that going as long as possible because it saved a lot of money to uh, nurse a child as opposed to feed them. And uh, so by the and there was no baby food basically, so nursing continued for a long time. Once he was able to be independent, she brought him uh, together with the sacrifice. As a child started to reach um, maturity, you know, obviously he didn't become an adult; he's still a kid. But he, she's uh, bringing him together with these thanksgiving offerings. Obviously, she's deeply grateful for having the zechut of having this child. And remember, like we said yesterday. That this is what makes Chana so different, that she recontextualized her whole plight. She's not thinking in terms of her own personal need that, oh, thank you, God, for fulfilling my need and my want that I wanted a child. She changed her whole motive in desiring a child. She changed from it being a personal satisfaction to it being recognizing that there was an underlying problem that the Jewish people were disconnected from God. That's why there was such a thing as an akara, as a woman who was barren. That's why there was such a thing as this klala occurring among the Jewish people. And therefore she said, I don't just want to solve my own problem. I want to solve the underlying problem, the big problem. I see the big picture. And therefore she's so grateful to have been a vehicle, she hopes, 
of this, uh, you know, transformation taking place. She can only imagine and hope that it will happen, but that was what her plan was. And so it makes sense that she prayed for this. In other words, Hashem put her in a position where she changed her whole concept of what it meant to have a child and the whole reason for why she, for which she would want this child and why she would pray for this and hope for this child. She transformed her whole attitude towards what it meant to be a mother in Israel, what it meant to have a child, the significance of her own um, barrenness, as well as the significance of her having this child had completely changed. And because it completely changed, only because it completely changed, does she bring this child to, the, to Shiloh, where he becomes an apprentice of Eli, who actually wasn't really such a bad guy himself, although he didn't do a very good job with his kids. She, she uh, brings him to, for this apprenticeship in Shiloh. And then, eventually... Um, he rises up to be the great Shemuel that we know. Only because she changed her perspective was that able to occur. So, uh, it says, they slaughtered the, the bull. And they brought the young boy to Eli. I always mention, whenever I come to this pasuk, a really wonderful example of Midrash Agada that the rabbis attached to this pasuk. I've probably mentioned it every time I've taught or learned this, the book of Shemuel, but I love to mention it because it's just a brilliant example of how the rabbis interpret the pasukim. They say that the reason why it says is because when Shemuel brought, Shemuel's family brought the bull to sacrifice to God to show their thanks for having this um, opportunity, this zechut of uh, bringing their child and presenting him before God, uh, and of course the rest is in God's hands, as we're going to see, and it does work out for the best. Um, they wanted to offer the sacrifice and they called the Kohanim to do it. And there was a delay. And Shmuel being a Talmid Chacham, a junior Talmid Chacham, in the eyes of the Midrash, said, no, 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 there's no requirement of a Kohen slaughtering a Korban. Only the rest of the service has to be done by Kohanim, but actually the slaughtering doesn't. And that is the Halakha. The Halakha is that a Zar, a non-Kohen, is allowed to do the slaughtering of a Korban. So it says that actually what happened was that Shmuel gave a Psikat Halakha. He gave a ruling and he said, you don't need a Kohen for this. Anybody can do it. So that's why it said, They sacrificed the bull. And they brought the child to Eli, meaning he got in trouble, the Midrash says. That because he made a ruling that was out of line, he made a ruling that was unauthorized. Who is this kid to start telling people, to being a posek and telling people, oh, you don't need, the kohanim are not necessary for this. Anybody can slaughter a korban. He's right. Anybody can do the slaughtering part. But who is he to come and start asserting his authority here in the Beit HaMikdash? So therefore it says that he was brought before Eli and he was in trouble. And they said, you're chayav mitah. You're liable for the death penalty because you you delivered a ruling in the... Um, in the uh, uh, in the uh, presence of the master, meaning in the presence of Eli, who would be the one who should really be making decisions, they brought, uh, you know, you, you dared to offer your own ruling, and therefore they brought him basically like he was arrested. And that's why it says, Vatomer biadoni, that's how they explain the next pasuk, that Chana said, please my master, meaning she was begging Eli not to kill Shmuel for this insubordination. Right, so but the real shot is that they slaughtered the bull, and then she was just explaining who she was. She's just explaining. Remember, I was the lady who came and I prayed and I was barren, and now this is the child, and I swore that I would give this child to you to be an apprentice, to be a spiritual leader of Am Yisrael. 
And uh, because, uh, because maybe or maybe not, maybe she explained it, maybe she didn't. Her understanding was deeper than anyone's why the Jewish people had fallen into the crisis that they had at that time. And therefore she wanted to solve it and she prayed to God that he would make Shmuel the person, the vehicle of solving it. But the, what is the Midrash saying, bringing in this idea that Shmuel made a ruling about sacrificing korbanot, slaughtering korbanot? Where, where, where would this come from? And that therefore he was in trouble with the Kohanim and they wanted to kill him because he dared to offer a ruling of halacha when he didn't have the authority to do that. What are the rabbis pointing out here? I think this is an, a brilliant, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful example, really. Really lovely example of a Midrash Agadar hitting the nail on the head about what's going on in the text. Because what is the whole mission of Shmuel? To upset, to disrupt the hegemony that the Kohanim have over the, the religious services and the religious life of the Jewish people. The Kohanim are supposed to play a certain role, but at this point, they had become entrenched in their position and totally corrupt, and they were taking advantage of that position for their own enjoyment, their own material benefit, without any regard to any higher purpose, as we're going to see elaborated in the Prakim that come ahead. So what Shmuel really was doing was undermining them. He was a Levi, not a Kohen, but he was undermining them by coming onto the scene and establishing himself as a religious authority. Eventually, he will become a uh, the universally recognized prophet and leader, spiritual leader of Israel. He basically pulled the rug right from under the Kohanim because up until that time, everybody associated religious leadership, religious authority, religious power with the Bnei Eli. And of course, it was a gigantic Chilul Hashem because the example that they set was horrible and the impression that they gave people was very destructive. And, you know, and, and was totally, uh, was totally incorrect, total distortion of Torah, total distortion of mitzvot. That's what they were giving. He comes along and he upsets the whole thing. They symbolize that. The rabbis beautifully show that he's symbolizing that by saying, hey, a Kohen doesn't have to be the one to slaughter the sacrifice. Only the rest of it has to be done by the Kohanim, meaning that this upstart is already challenging the halachic authority of the Kohanim. They don't have to be the ones who are the religious leaders in every sense. If they're not the wisest and the most knowledgeable and the most excellent examples of what Torah is about, then they don't have to be the authorities in any way other than what the halacha requires, which is that they do the sacrifices in the Beit HaMikdash from the slaughtering and on, but not before that. Meaning Shmuel was asserting his, his very presence. What the rabbis are saying is the very presence of this kid who was not part of the team, who was not part of the family, who wasn't a Kohen, was not an insider, was an outsider coming in to, to borrow a phrase, you know, to drain the swamp. You know, he was coming in to drain the swamp, to borrow a uh, modern phrase. So because he was doing that, his very presence was threatening the authority and the power and the hegemony and the monopoly that the Kohanim had. That was what the Midrash, I believe, is trying to say, that they wanted to kill him. In other words, they used the example that he challenged their, their, um, their entitlement to do the slaughtering of the Korban or their exclusive right to doing the slaughtering of the Korban as a non-Kohen. But really what they're getting to is that his non-Kohenness made him an outsider, not one of the insiders, not somebody who was like uh, a Washington insider, as they say in the U.S. You know, he was somebody who came from the outside to upset and disrupt the system and they perceived that and they knew that and of course eventually he does succeed in pulling the rug out from under them. But the very fact that he's there is a, a, a challenge to their uh, monopoly on the religious life of the Jewish people. And using that example of where the halakha actually allows a non-Kohen to edge in on the territory of the Kohanim through the slaughtering of their own sacrifice is a symbolic uh, nod to this, uh, this breach that Shmuel was making with his presence into the world of the Kohanim.
So any, in any case we know that וגם אנוכי שלטיו לשם, כל הימים אשר היה, הוא שאול לשם, וישתחו שם לשם, and then חנה says, look, for his whole life this child is given to Hashem, I wanted this child not for my own satisfaction, or maybe you could even say, I changed what my idea of satisfaction is, I don't want the, satis- the petty personal satisfaction of having a child, I want the satisfaction of seeing that a new leader can arise in Israel, that can turn things around, that can make things better, that will be an outsider, who will have the knowledge and education that is offered by Elia Kohen, but without the kind of a... Um, membership card to the club of the Kohanim that leads to the corruption that we now see. And perhaps he'll be able to pull the Jewish people out of the mud of their uh, spiritual uh, spiritual uh, downfall, the spiritual um, uh, total uh, disintegration that they've undergone. And we'll be able to restore them to a level where they will have the Zuchut, where there won't be any more barren women anymore. There won't be any more suffering, any more klala. We'll be living under the bacha instead of the klala as a result. So that was her prayer. Now we come to what is called tefillat chana. Now tefillat chana is in the beginning of the sidur. Every sidur has tefillat chana. It's a good thing to know by heart. I used to teach children to learn it by heart. It's a beautiful prayer. Let's take a look at it. And I want to share with you um, one of the problems that everybody raises with tefillat chana and why it's not really a problem in my opinion. My heart exalts in Hashem, said Chana. My, uh, literally, Karni means, uh, means my uh, horn, right? So it, it means my pride is uh, lifted in Hashem. My mouth is open wide against my enemies because I have rejoiced in your salvation. So she's talking about how happy she is, how joyous she is that Hashem answered her prayer and she was able to fulfill this dream of delivering Shmuel to the, uh, uh, to, to the Mishkan as she had promised. None is as holy as Hashem. There is none other than you. There is no rock like our God. Don't speak so highly and make and, and have falsehood come out of your mouths. Because God is a God of knowledge and all of the activity that goes on is caused by Him or is controlled by Him, is part of His plan and His plan only. And don't, don't arrogate to yourself. Don't believe that you are the one who directs fate. Sometimes the mighty person's bow can be, uh, can be broken. And the, the weak person can be girded with strength. Sometimes someone who is satisfied will find themselves having to, to uh, uh, sell themselves for bread. Meaning they'll become... A destitute or evim chadelu, and sometimes a hungry person will no longer be hungry. Sometimes a woman who is barren will have seven children. Yet, and a woman who has many children could, God forbid, become desolate of them. Hashem mimit umchayem orit sholvayal. God give, uh, causes death and gives life. He lowers down to the pit and he raises up. Hashem orishu marashir. Hashem makes you poor or rich. Mashpilaf meromim. Puts you down, raises you up. Now you can see David HaMelech borrowed some of the phrases of Chana in Tehilim for the Halel, right? This phrase is found in the Halel in the beginning, right? He lifts from the, a poor person from the dust, from the trash heap. He lifts a destitute person. To have him sit with princes. And a, a throne of glory he gives them. Because 
Hashem is the one to whom the foundations of earth belong. Vayashet aleim tevel, and He founded the earth upon them. The feet of His His pious ones He guards, and the wicked walk in darkness. Okay, or are destroyed, really disappear into the darkness. Um, it means they're cut off into the darkness. Because it's not power, it's not physical strength by which a person prevails. Hashem May all of the enemies of God be cut off. Alav b'shamayim yareim that um, uh, that upon the enemies of God, really, it's talking about um, they uh, in heaven they roar. Hashem yadin afsearetz. Hashem judges to the ends of the earth. Viten oz limalko. He gives strength to his king. Viarem keren mishicho, and he raises the keren mishicho, the horn or the pride of his. Anointed one, right? It has to do with, uh, it, you know, because the horn is what makes the animal seem very distinguished. Uh, it's used in that sense. But the so this prayer, so it, really this this prayer, it's very similar actually to the very first chapter of Hallel. This prayer is a description of how uh, fate is in the hands of God, how a person's circumstance is subject to the will of God and can undergo a complete transformation in a matter of a moment. An individual who one moment ago was wealthy could become poor, poor could become wealthy, um, powerless could become powerful, uh, you know, uh, in a position of victory could be losing. All of these things, someone who has many children could have none or someone who has none could have many. All of these things are fully in the hands of God and God's plan is the determining factor in all that plays out in the world. That's really what the prayer is about. There are two things that are pointed out about this prayer that make it unusual. The first thing is the most obvious, the last line, where she says, May Hashem give strength to his king and may raise the pride of, or, or the, you know, the power of his anointed one. What anointed one? What king? There was no king. There was no anointed one yet. There was nobody in charge at that time. It wouldn't be until much later that Shmuel anoints the first king, Shaul, and even later than that, that he anoints the second king who will be the final king, David. So what is she talking about when she says, uh, may, uh, may the, the power, may God give power to the monarch, may he raise the honor and pride and power and strength of the, uh, uh, of the anointed one. What anointed one? There is no anointed one right now. So that's one issue, the obvious issue in the text. The second issue is that there's no mention anywhere in this prayer of anything particular to the plight of Chana. It's so general. She's talking about how Hashem is the one who is the master of a person's fate. Nobody should think that they become so arrogant and have falsehood exit their lips and think that they're the one that's in control. They're the one in the driver's seat. Hashem transcends all and directs all. And uh, and therefore, uh, there's no way to... Uh, uh, you know, there's no way to, um, uh, to, to feel that, for a person to feel that they're in the driver's seat of, the, of their own life, let alone the life of, uh, of the nation or, 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 the, or the world. Everything is ultimately in God's hands, and the particulars of our circumstances are subject to factors beyond our control. That is all true. But that has nothing to do with Hana's particular plight or Hana's particular experience. And therefore, I've heard some, even rabbis, I'm um, not going to mention names, doesn't really matter. I've heard rabbis even say, and I've seen in books, even by, I'm talking about Orthodox rabbis, I'm not talking about like uh, people who uh, challenge the validity or the uh, or authenticity of the story. I'm talking about people who look at this and say, you know, 
This tefillat chana at the end obviously was not related to the experience of chana. It was just a general prayer that either she said or that she recited that was an already established prayer that people said. It was a prayer of thanksgiving. It was like a halil that she said and it had nothing to do with her life. It was just a standard kind of a halil that she either composed or that she recited. There was already a fixed text that existed in her time. And that this was not really supposed to be related to the particulars of her life because there is nothing particular about it. Uh, and in fact, not only is there nothing particular about it, it seems to be anachronistic because it's talking about there being a king and there being a uh, an anointed one. And that didn't happen until much, much later after the time of Hannah. Maybe she was an old woman at the time that it happened. I don't know how, what her age was at the time when David was anointed or she was around still. I don't know. But the point is that it, it, it could it have been... Uh, uh, written much later by Chana, could it, you know, how do we, what, what is the reason? In other words, the, the difficulty that people have is with this prayer is that it doesn't seem to directly connect to the story. It's like a generic prayer. You could literally recite this prayer of Chana. It's in the Sidur, actually. It's in the Sidur of every day. You open it, it's at the very beginning of the Sidur because it's generic and you could say it any day and it's relevant any time. So that's exactly their point. So then why is it here? And, and therefore, they want to say that really it was just a generic thing and it was appended here. But I want to suggest that that's missing the whole point. And that was the whole point of really yesterday's shiur. That the greatness of Chana is that she's not preoccupied with the particulars of her situation. That she sees the particulars of her situation as merely exemplifying something broader, more significant, more important more universal than the details of her life. That's the whole point. Just like she decided not to look for a child for herself to have, but to look for a child who would transform the fate and destiny of Am Yisrael, she saw her being gifted the child, she saw the um, reversal of fortune in her life, not as about her, but about the fact that God's plan triumphs over all and overcomes no matter what human designs there are or what human expectations might be or what human assumptions might be about how things are going to play out. We generally assume the status quo will hold or something close to the status quo and we don't believe that revolutionary things can happen. Her life is a testimony to the fact that that's not true, that God's plan triumphs over and trumps all and that there's no way for a person to uh, imagine, or it's wrong for a person to imagine, that they have a full grasp of what God's ultimate trajectory is going to be based on the data that's currently available to them. It's if, or based on their, their situation in the here and now, that they can extrapolate to that what their situation is going to be in the near future, certainly not in the far future. That's so Chana's using her personal experience, just like she saw in her personal experience, not just her own suffering, but the suffering of the Jewish people under uh, failed spiritual leadership, she now praises God, not just by mentioning the details of what happened to her, but by seeing in her own reversal of fortune a reflection of the fact that God's plan can overcome any obstacle. God's plan can reverse any circumstance if that circumstance is standing in the way of the achievement of the ends and the objectives that God wills. That's the idea that she sees. And therefore she says, and, the, and the, at the end when she talks about the Mashiach, she talks about there being a, an anointed one, talks about there being a king, 
that's what she's seeing as the future. In other words, if you understand that the whole reason she wanted to give Shmuel to, the, to Shiloh, she wanted him to become a new spiritual leader, was that eventually what would emerge from that would be a revolution, a re- spiritual reawakening that would culminate in their being a leader of Israel. Maybe she thought it was, could be Shmuel himself. Maybe she thought it would be somebody in the future. Maybe she, prob- she wouldn't assume that she would know that detail. But she knew that the solution to the Jewish people's plight would be having a king that was God's king. That God's anointed and God's king, meaning a king chosen by God, a leader chosen by God, and living according to the wisdom of God, and governing in accordance with the wisdom of God. That's what's needed to solve the problems of the Jewish people. That's what she understood. And whether she thought by king or anointed one, Shmuel himself would be the one, or somebody who would be chosen by Shmuel, she didn't necessarily have to know that or even presume to know that. But the idea is that she was looking forward to the big picture, that in the same way that her her fortunes were reversed, in the same way that a poor person can become rich, a rich person can become poor, a sated person can become hungry, a hungry person can become sated, a barren person can have children, a person with children can become barren, and so on. God can reverse fortune. God can transform. Now that Shemuel is in place, God can transform the circumstances right now of chaos among the Jewish people, of religious apathy or religious corruption and and a lack of guidance, a lack of unity, lack of leadership, he can transform that into a nation that is united under the leadership of a qualified, divinely chosen leader that will emerge. That is really what the Tfilat Chana, in my opinion, is about. So on the contrary, it's not about, it's not an, uh, an anomaly here. It's not something that like just got tacked on to the end of the story. And you will if you listen to Shiurim, even of wonderful rabbis who are the Tanakh, um, some of the Tanakh luminaries of, uh, that are around today who talk about the story will tell you that this was just appended here, this is extra, it's not really connected to the story. I think the opposite. It's very connected to the story. It's connected to the story because the whole story is of a person who isn't thinking about the particulars of their life, who is seeing in the particulars of their life something much more grand and sweeping and universal and, and significant than that, uh, which is the enemies of God falling, the righteous being uplifted, because she knew that enemies of God, people who were desecrating God's name, were certainly, uh, were, were at that time uh, uh, in positions of power. And, and she was saying that they should fall, and those who are really following God's will should be the ones who rise up. She wanted and yearned for that to happen. And that's the reason for the prayer at the end of the story of Shmuel. In, and that's why it's a tefillah, actually. It's not just a thanking of God. It's a prayer. Because her first prayer was for Shmuel to be born. So that he could be in a position to change things. And her next prayer is that God should create the circumstance, since it's within his power to do so, create the circumstance and bring about whatever's necessary to see to it. That those who are corrupting the Torah and distorting it will fall. The enemies of God will fall and those who are in a position to reveal the light of Torah and restore the glory of Torah and return the Jewish people to the path of Torah will be on the ascendancy and will reunite the Jewish people in service of God. That's why it's a tefillah, a titpalel chanat. Not just a halel that she's thanking God and some generic thing, nothing to do with her life. She's reading a halel. No, 
It's very connected because it's the next stage in the unfolding of the divine plan that she was trying to take part in and uh, be instrumental to. And I think that's why Chana is such a critical character in understanding what tefillah is about, understanding what prayer is really about. It comes from Chana, the rabbis say, because she exemplifies what it means to pray. What it means to pray is to change our perspective on what we need and why we need it, why we want it, how it fits in to a picture and a context that is greater than ourselves. Bezrat Hashem, we will continue uh, on Sunday actually with the next installment.